Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Atheist Alliance International Podcast. I am your host, Jason Sylvester, aka Diogenes of Mayberry. Today we are joined by a uh, blogger, public speaker, and author of the book Islam versus Muslims and the Apostate, Anjali Pandavar. So welcome, Anjali, and thank you for, for joining the show. Thank you so, very much. Uh, thank you for, for having me. Yeah, so why don't you just uh, introduce yourself and what you do <laughs> to our viewers so they can get to know who you are. Uh, it's a slightly complicated introduction because... Um, I have I have uh, lived in many countries and have long histories in, in some of those places. But I was born in South Africa, which is where I grew up, and, um, and uh, moved to Britain as an adult. And uh, have since uh, lived in China for quite a long time, and now I live in Central Europe. I'm saying Central Europe because I move around between several of the countries in Central Europe is part of what I do. Uh, what else? I, I've um, been very concerned about uh, the erosion of freedom in the, in the West and especially about um, the way Islam seems to be getting away with more and more. Um, and so it's been my my concern and efforts to try to um, number one make Muslims aware that uh, they are actually being used, um, and to try them try to help them to see that their humanity is what's been destroyed by their religion. Um, and that uh, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of effort. It's a hard thing to do to claim your humanity from your faith and, uh, and live your life as a, as a decent human being without being commanded to do so by some other god, especially if what the god tells you to do is to go out and do some pretty awful things. And uh, those things are awful, and uh, you can't see that those things are awful because you are Muslim. Your ethics are shot. Islam has destroyed it. That's it. And so you can't see that, that you are being used to do some pretty horrible, awful things in the world. And um, I mean, I, I don't think I'm particularly influential in doing that, but my work is out there. And um, the more the, I, I, th I think. There, were, there was a time when, when Muslims um, engaged with me and the engagement involved more like frustration at my not leaving them alone to get on with their lives and do what they do um, because they're not disturbing anybody and they're not killing anybody and they're not doing any of those nasty things. But um, that's how Islam keeps going. There is Islam. There is Islam for the ones who do carry out those commandments. Uh, to, to operate in, and uh, if they just leave this horrible place, this, I'm sorry, this horrible faith, there's less Islam left, and uh, those who would carry out those commands uh, 
become more and more marginalized, as indeed they, they, they are in, in some parts of the world. So uh, that's where my main concern goes. Um, the, the book's been, the book debuted in Polish because no one would touch uh, my book. I couldn't find a publisher in English. And um, hopefully that's about to change after this conference. But um, I, take, I take heart from how many people across the Muslim world are leaving Islam. That's encouraging. And even if I have absolutely nothing to do with it, I'm adding to the pressure simply by my work being out there and available for people to read. And so what, what prompted you to, to want to focus on, on Muslims and their faith? Was there a, a specific defining moment that, that, that triggered uh, things for you? I, 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 I was a Muslim for 22 years of my life. Um, and although I'd, I'd never been physically, I'd never been beaten or physically abused, uh, it was a pretty awful experience being in Madrasa. And, um, and I have seen my, my fellow pupils in Madrasa um, being given this, this, this horrible punishment called falaka as it was it was given to the to the boys where their their ankles were tied together and then their feet were suspended in midair they were lying down the floor and their feet their bare their bare feet suspended in midair and the teacher caned the soles of their feet those those poor boys they 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 it was horrific. It was horrific. Even if you, even if you shut your eyes, just the screams of the poor boys, and the fact that they couldn't walk afterwards, they they had to crawl out of the madrasa. And this was not even the worst. So, so that's some of the stuff. Um, that, but I also, the Muslims around me, uh, including my own family, my cousins, our neighbours. They were just messed up. Their ethics were totally messed up. The kind of things they thought was were okay for people to do were just messed up. You, you, you don't behave that way. You don't kill somebody because they said something that you don't like. It's ridiculous. And um, and also, I mean, look, let's let's be blunt here, okay? Islam. Islam does everything to kill your ability to think, all right? Um, there's a verse in the Quran that says, uh, we hear and we obey. That's it, that's a virtue. That's a virtue to, to be a complete robot, hear and obey, it's a virtue. To never question, it's a virtue. That gets beaten out of you in your childhood. And so, <clears throat> Muslims who see this, they will they will recognize what I am saying, but something inside them will militate against accepting what I am saying. And so for as long as that goes on, there's, there's a fight going on inside them between their own humanity and uh, their commitment to this to this horrible faith. 
sooner or later in increasing number of Muslims, their humanity prevails over their faith and they either pretend to be Muslim but they, aren't, they no longer are because they, they fear or they don't want to upset their parents or something like this, or they just leave. That's it. They leave. And, and then they afterwards finally learn how to become free and ethical human beings capable of taking their own decisions, capable of thinking, capable of questioning. And um, yes, so for me, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to tell a little story. We lived next door to a Christian family and when, when I was a child. And um, there's a very kind lady, old lady next door, uh, whom I used to talk to. And she, she told me one day uh, that, that, that they, Christians, and us, Muslims, we pray to the same God. That's what she said to me. And later in that week, a few days later, the Yom Kippur War broke out. It tells us something about how old I am. <laughs> um, and in school, in, in state school, uh, that the next morning, the headmaster assembled the school in the courtyard and said a prayer, Christian prayer, in which he asked God to protect the Jews and to help Israel win the war. Later that day, uh, late afternoon or evening, um, in the mosque, uh, the imam said a special prayer too, a dua, as, as we said. Um, and the, 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 the imam asked God to protect the Muslims and to help them win the war. So, of course, the memory of my conversation with the lady a few days earlier was fresh in my mind. There's something isn't right here. These two sides fighting in a war, both appealing to the same God to help them and help them win this war. I was 16 at the time, and that was the beginning for me of my long road to atheism. I, I didn't think of it like that at the time. Of course, I was just trying to figure this out, yes. Um, but as, as the years went by, um, I found myself becoming more and more defensive of Islam and defensive of being Muslim and finding good things and ignoring things that didn't make sense, et cetera, et cetera. That, that just kind of intensified until I was 22, that's six years later. Um, and then the Iranian revolution happened. And when the Iranian revolution happened, 1979, I was in university, undergraduate. Um, many of my friends were Muslim at that time. And I think every single one of them, I'm, I, I, I could be exaggerating, but I think every single one of them either went to 
Saudi Arabia or to Egypt or to uh, Pakistan. And they came back from those places Muslim with a capital M. It, it, was, it was scary to see what had happened to them. They were, they were lively, jovial, funny people, great to be with, and they all came back super messed up. And um, I, was still, I was still a Muslim at the time, and I was still going to madrasa, even as an adult. So um, a Saturday night, Saturday night, I went to madrasa on my own, and uh, it was already dark, and the madrasa was behind the teacher's house. He, he, he built it. Many, many madrasas were like that where, where I grew up. And uh, I, got, I got to the, to the front, to the front gate. The teacher's teenage daughter was standing inside the gate with her hands resting on the gate. And outside the gate was a boy of maybe 16, 17, and his hands were resting on her hands. So they were staring into each other's eyes, young love sprouting. And, and they noticed me coming. They managed to open the gate, let me through, and shut the gate again without once lifting their hands or breaking eye contact with each other. Okay, so I walked through the house. There was nobody in sight and went through to the back to the madrasa to wait for the teacher. Took out my Quran. And while I waited, I heard this incredible screaming break out in the house. It was my teacher who already had a very loud voice. And he was screaming at this, at this girl. And I heard the sound of hitting. And the girl screamed, like really blood-curdling screams. And her mother started screaming for him to, to stop doing this, to stop beating her. And uh, there was a rage, unbelievable. And um, this, I, I thought this girl was being killed. And something snapped inside me. So I packed up my Quran and uh, slowly did that and walked back out through the house. By this time, uh, there was nobody there on that same passage that I'd walked through earlier. There was nobody there. And I could hear the girl crying, sobbing her eyes out somewhere in the house. And, and my teacher was nowhere inside. His wife was nowhere inside. But the, on the floor was wood splinters everywhere. He had beaten her with either plank or, piece of, or pieces of wood so hard that the wood splintered all over the place. Now, I, I shudder to think what the soft flesh of somebody's body would do under those blows if the blows shattered the wood, right? Um, I have no idea whether that girl lived or died, but I walked out of the house and from that moment on, I had no religion anymore. 
I had no God, let alone no Islam. I, I just had no religion, period. That was the end of it for me. So six years from the lady telling me we worship the same God to the point of I have no God. So you, you had a pretty defining moment then that most most people don't necessarily have that, you know, discrete cutoff where it's it's just instantaneous, but it seems it was that way for you. In a, in a sense, that's true, but there's something else that needs to be said as well. Um, it was it was that moment that from that moment on, I had no I had no God. I had no religion. This is absolutely true. But it took many, many years before I could get rid of the effects of Islam on my mind and on my spirit. And uh, when I set up the website murtadtohuman.org, um, it was to, to bring a particular awareness to people who leave Islam that just because you have left Islam doesn't mean that you are now free. It doesn't mean that you are now human. There's a lot of damage that needs to be repaired. You need to recover from having been a Muslim, which is a pathology. And so it takes hard work and hard effort to do that. Um, what, what ex-Muslims do as soon as they've left Islam and they've told other people, I, I know, and they're getting into these social support things, is that they have a party or gathering and obligatory is to eat bacon and drink alcohol. <laughs> and this is like a major rite of passage, right? That is the easy part. We all do that. And that is the easy part, right? The hard part is getting your ethics back. The hard part is getting your honesty, your intellectual honesty back. To be able to say to yourself, Muslims are messed up. Simple. I was messed up. And I don't become healed simply by saying I'm no longer a Muslim. That's the starting point. That's when the hard work begins to rebuild yourself. And I think the great tragedy is that um, in the West, people have given over their minds to another kind of religion, another kind of orthodox mind control, um, where they have to belong to this group or that group, and there's, there's the, the whole multiculturalism, identity politics, wokeness, all of that stuff is Islam light. I'm sorry. And so if you come out of Islam and you go straight into that, you are not going to free yourself from the consequences of having had decades of your life under Islam. You need to free yourself completely from all allegiances that would cause you to, to think twice about being honest about it, about them, about yourself. Because you owe allegiance to this, you owe allegiance to that. 
you can't say the wrong thing here, you can't criticize that, you have to conform here, conform there. How is that different? Maybe in Islam you didn't go around killing anybody, so you're not going around killing anybody now. But you're not allowing yourself to think in a clear, rational, un unrestrained way. So basically it's Islam light. That's what you've walked straight into. And uh, for me, that's not good enough. Um, by the time my life ends, I must have lived. And, and for me to live, I've got to expunge all the effects of Islam from my being. And the sooner I do that, the sooner I gain a few years of life in which I am truly free and I can criticize whomever I think deserves to be criticized. And I can take criticism from others as a human being standing on my own two feet. I'll say, yes, you got a point there. Thank you very much. I need to change this or I need to change that. I will not feel that you've stabbed me in the back or anything like this, as is so, so much the case with all these uh, um, communities, including the so-called ex-Muslim community. Um, you will find it very seldom that I call myself an ex-Muslim because, because it's cultish because there's a whole cult associated with that, where you can only think certain things and you can only say certain things. I'm sorry, that, that's, what, that's what my life was like under Islam. I'm having none of it anymore. Um, now I am an autonomous individual and I make my own mistakes and I take responsibility for my mistakes, period, that's it. Um, so that's where I am and, and to, your, to, your, to your viewers, I, I would I would encourage them, even if they only look at it and say nothing, um, to look to look at what I'm saying on my website. Not many people are saying these things. My website is murtad with a double D to human dot org. Um, I think I think ex people once people who have left Islam have done a great thing. They have, have it's a major major accomplishment and they all have to be congratulated on having achieved that but they cannot then become complacent and think it's all okay now it's far from okay islam lives in you um i i i discovered many many years after having left islam i, I went to an urban farm somewhere and there was a, a pig pen and, and in this pig pen was this one big pig. And uh, you could lean over the wall. Um, and the pig was up against the wall where I was standing. So there's this big pig right here. And then there's the wall and then me on the outside. And I wanted to touch the pig. <laughs> for, for me, the, I only realized when I saw this pig right here close to me that I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to touch this pig. And even though it was so many years since I had left Islam, there was still, there was still that taboo against pigs lingering somewhere deep inside me that made it so difficult for me to simply put my, my hand down and touch this pig's back. It was well within reach, right? 
<laughs> I tell the story on the website as well. Eventually, after almost vomiting, um, I managed to reach down and touch the pig's back with the tip of my finger. Um, that, for me, was the moment when I think I was finally, finally, finally free from Islam. Yeah, I, I think it's it. It's the same for Christians and Jews as well. The the ex like they, you know, myself was an ex Christian, and you know, you you notice that sort of lingering after effect uh, that is still there. Like it, like you said, like it's you've been brainwashed since childhood, so it it doesn't go away overnight. Like the same the same intuition or intuitive leap that we make to to non belief, those memories are still burned into us. So it it does take some time to, to get over it so so yeah. so did, did you enjoy your first taste of beer and bacon was that good <laughs> um my first taste of beer was awful it was yeah. such a god-awful taste um i didn't know what people saw in it i yeah. i didn't even i don't like beer either the way through it but i i eventually learned to like it and now i now i love it and i'm even yeah. uh i'm even able to tell what kind of beers i prefer as opposed to others Bacon, yeah. that's another story. Um, I, I love bacon from the word go. And uh, <laughs> I, I was in a student, the student union building with my, early, in the, early on a cold winter's morning, I walked into this packed student union building and uh, I got hit by this incredible smell of whatever it was. And it, it turned out it was bacon frying and eggs frying and hot coffee all together on a cold winter's morning. So I had what everybody else had, which was bacon and egg on this, on this uh, big bread roll thing and a huge mug of steaming black coffee and sat down with my friends, took the first bite and oh goodness, um, <laughs> it was the most incredible taste I'd ever experienced in my life. It really was. Um, and my friends just enjoyed the various primeval sounds of approval that I was making, sounds with grunts of enjoyment. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, th I think the Christians, uh, the Christians won that one. They they convinced Muslims that bacon, you don't want to eat pork. You don't want to. You don't have nothing to do with that. They want to eat that stuff, and kept all this incredible tasting meat for themselves. So yeah. Well done, yeah, I, was, I was working in Pakistan a few years ago and I could smell bacon and I'm like, am I having a stroke? And then I realized <laughs> that my, my apartment was right next to one of the European consulates. I'm like, oh, it's coming from the oh, consulate's yes. cooking something up. So I'm like, I'm like, do I need to call an ambulance? <laughs> so, okay. Mm. All right. So we'll, we'll put the link to your, to your website in the description so our viewers can, can find your site. So I'm mm -hmm. going to do that. And, and you said your book is currently only in Polish. So it, it we, exists we, only in Polish and uh, there are some reviews of it and, uh, on, and on my website as well. But the interesting thing is that the, the, the time, it was published in Polish in last year, last year, just over a year ago. Um, but in the interim, the, the title of the original has gone through some evolution itself uh, as I arrive at better titles, better titles. And uh, so now um, 
the way it stands now, I think it's probably going to be published if a publisher agrees. Um, as simply Islam destroys Muslims. That's the, the that's the latest title. Watch the website to see whether it evolves into something else, um, or a publisher forces me to tone it down a bit or whatever. Um, but that's a summary. That's a summary of the book. That's a summary of what I what I'm convinced about. And I I spend a lot of time just in the book describing what Islam does to Muslims, to Muslim mind, to Muslim ethics and to the, 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 the walking contradiction that a Muslim is, constant fight with him or herself, and never reaching happiness, never reaching, even though they can tell themselves they're happy, I'm a Muslim, and no, you're not, no, you're not, you're not. You are a walking contradiction, that's what you are. Um, and then I spent time uh, talking about ex-Muslims and the dangers that, ex-Muslims face, um, their weaknesses, the, the, the traps they walk into. I, I write about those things. And then finally, um, I write about uh, organized global Islam's reaction to Muslims leaving Islam. It's the biggest crisis. That is the biggest crisis Islam has ever faced. It could always rely on this mass of people who do not know, who do not know what Islam is because the sheikhs, the ulama, <clears throat> lie to them. They lie to them all the time and they're supposed to just hear and obey and they hear and obey. But, and they have standard stock answers for everything. But as soon as somebody who can think comes along and says, but what about this, but what about that? They cannot answer. All they can do is say, I have to ask a sheikh. Well, if you're defending this religion, why do you have to ask a sheikh? Clearly, you, you're, you're just an instrument. You're just a, you're just a, a thing, you're a tool. Um, but they, they, that, is, that is the conception. They are tools and they understand themselves in that way. Allah wants them to do this and so they do it. Um, there's, there's this guy called Yasser Qadi, um, who makes a point of hammering? Uh, if you leave Islam, then you have no purpose. This is this is the well. What is the purpose? The purpose is to is to please Allah. This guy who tells you to murder people, this guy who tells you it's okay to have sex with a newborn baby. This is this is this is this is the being you must obey. This is your purpose. I mean, sorry, you know. Uh, if 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 you cannot see that that you have negated your very being as a human being, if you cannot see that, then then there, there is nothing to you. You're just a living automaton. That's it. No judgment. Yeah. Sorry, I'm that's sure not that a bright message, note to end on. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that message doesn't go over well with the zealots, though. So I imagine some of the more moderates who might have be sitting, waffling on the fence and, and kind of considering. For them, it resonates, but for the zealots, it, it just the fences would go up. You know? the, the, yes, yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to engage with, with people as well. There's a contact uh, facility on the website. I don't do 
comments uh, that are just too, too nasty and horrible and unproductive. But I am contactable. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Anjali, for coming on. So as, as I mentioned, we'll put the in the description, you'll be able to find a link to her website. You can go, you can follow along, read her, read her, her blogs and see the progress if her book comes out in English with a new title. You can pick that up as well. So and you can reach out to her, as she said, by her contacts if you have questions. Uh, hopefully they're productive questions for you and you don't want to just lash out at her. So that would be nice. Okay. Well, thank you, and Julia. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. Uh, it was quite moving to hear the the, the episodes that uh, caused you to break your, your catalyst with uh, breaking with faith and, and joining the side of reason. So, so, well, thank you very much for for having invited me, and uh, I've enjoyed talking to you too. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll as I said, we'll put, we'll post the link so people can find you. And just like to remind everyone to please like and subscribe, and we'll see everybody on the next episode. All right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks for listening and don't forget we're on YouTube, so follow us on YouTube, just search for Atheist Alliance International and please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We're also on all of your favourite podcast platforms, so make sure that you follow us on there as well. See you next time.